Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We only work with people that want to build power to make the world a better place, including community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. We develop community engagement strategies to win campaigns both big and small. We train engagement staff and volunteers in the Gantz framework of leadership, organising and action. And we help folks craft their story through the practice of public narrative that connects people through their shared values and moves them to act together. And if you want to act in unison with your own community in 2024, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. For over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been extending access to justice for everyday Australians through their advocacy and campaign work. And they need your help. They have a job opportunity for a social media communicator with a flair for progressive campaigning. Based in either the Melbourne or Brisbane office, uh, it's you'll join their marketing and comms team. And for more information, check out morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. So they, therefore, you need the tools that you can trust, the lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community both online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, simply visit their website, swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that drops every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And to start uh, this new year, I know that we're almost in March, but what we're going to do now is we're going to do a monthly recap of the, um, the month in Australian politics uh, and to help me do that, we're going to be joined every month at the end of each month uh, with my good friend uh, and colleague, David Feeney. And you'll know David um, from our election recaps and previews uh, last year. We did it, oh, sorry, is it last year? What was last year? 2023. Now we did it in 2022 for the state election and also the federal election. David's a former National Assistant Secretary of the ALP, a former campaign director here in Victoria, and obviously a former MP, both in the Upper House and in the House of Representatives. Uh, and now he's a man of leisure. Uh, and so he's going to come on the show each month and we're going to do a recap of what happened in federal politics, starting with what happened in federal politics for the month of February. So looking forward to having the chat to David each month to discuss all of those important uh, machinations of um, Australian politics. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify when you're done listening and leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use that enables you to do reviews if you can. For all the updates, follow Dunn Street on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Tuesday lunchtime on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and to launch the first edition of our monthly recap of Australian politics. I am joined by the former Victorian campaign director for the ALP, the former assistant secretary, national assistant secretary for the ALP, former senator and former member for Batman, 
and uh, a regular on Socially Democratic these days because I don't think he's got much else to do with his time. David Feeney, welcome back to the pod. Thank you very much and thank you for so outrageously denigrating my thriving practice. Um, can I say at the outset, happy World Pokemon Day. I did not know that it was World Pokemon Day. Why are you such a Pokemon person? Uh, because I have children, Stephen. That's true. I do. And um, despite my best efforts, Pokemon is a craze going sweeping through uh, Westgarth Primary School, and there we are. I thought Pokemon had done its dash. I didn't think that it would come back. Is it Pokemon must be like a, the yo-yo that sort of comes in and out of vogue. Precisely. You think it's done, and then like a boomerang, there's another craze in 10 months' time. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, good luck with that, David. I wish, wish you the best. Happy World Pokemon Day. Thank you. And to all of our viewers out there as well, happy World Pokemon Day, if that is your uh, advice. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here we are where I've managed to convince you to do the, to commit to one ed episode per month to recap Australian politics, um, which we are obviously grateful for. Uh, I thought what we could do to begin with with today's episode is, is basically do a little bit of scene setting and get your reflections on how, how – Labor finished 2023 and then start to talk about what does 2024 look like. And then in the third part of the episode, we'll start to do a review of exactly what happened in February. So it's a bit of context for, for the for the for the viewers at home. Um 2023, how do you think Labor finished the year? Uh in pretty ragged shape, you'd have to say. Um you'll remember, of course, that um the Prime Minister on his victorious election night um, set out the fact that uh, the voice and justice for Indigenous Australians was going to be um, a key goal of uh, the Labor government. Um, and then we, of course, had the voice referenda, which the Prime Minister, um, like it or not, had invested a lot of political capital in and it was decisively rejected um, in, the, uh, in October of last year. So that was obviously a heavy blow, and and I think the prime minister did lose a layer of skin over it. I, I, I mean, this is not an episode about the voice, but I think uh, the defeat was, um, you know, well and truly uh, aspired from advance. We knew we were set for defeat. Um, I had conversations with my colleagues a long time before, saying, "Well, you know, what? How do we manage defeat? Because we're going to get defeated." Very, very frustrating. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think it was defeated for a whole set of tactical reasons, uh, which mostly go to the incompetence of the yes case. But whatever it was, we were done. Um, and I think coming out of that defeat, the government was resolved to uh, hit the ground running and uh, demonstrate to the Australian people that it, you know, it can walk and chew gum at the same time. It had a lot of other things underway, a lot of busy ministers uh, with stuff and it was going to be able to march forward. But two things happened which made 2023 worse. Um, the first of those was the uh, 7 October massacre in uh, Israel and the war that erupted as a consequence of that massacre, um, which just transfixed um, global and domestic media and really meant that um, that was the story whether you liked it or not, for quite some time. And as we know, um, nothing 
transfixes the attention of um, Australian politics and particularly sort of centre-left Australian politics than uh, an argument about Israel. Um, and so this, I think, became a debate that was disproportionately discombobulating for Labor in a way that it wasn't, obviously, for the Coalition and it wasn't for the Greens. The Greens saw it as an opportunity. Um, the Liberals are of one mind about it. But for Labor, it's a far more difficult and traumatic conversation to have, um, amplified by the fact that everyone seems to have extremely heated opinions about the matter, notwithstanding mm. the fact that Australia can do nothing of tangible benefit to anyone in Israel. So that kind of rocked the Australian political universe and then not, you know, on its heels was the decision of the High Court concerning um, the detention of uh, 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 illegal immigrants with a criminal history and that became a monster issue which uh, the government, uh, I think it can be said, was or was seen to fumble and gave the Liberal Party or the Coalition an opportunity to jump back onto its favourite turf, which is immigration uh, and having an d- immigration debate. So these things, this sort of nasty cocktail in October, November, December, meant that the government kind of ended the year um, in, a, in pretty poor political shape. And I think that was well and truly well understood. The government, in polling terms, if you trust news poll, um, had kind of gone from a May height of a primary vote of 42% and things were looking very, very strong and kind of by the end of the year we had a primary vote of something in the order of 33% and I think the 2PP had closed to 50-50. So um, uh, 2023 finished as a tough year for the government. You also saw, I actually just pulled out the uh, the aggregated polling data tracking the primary vote of the, the the two major parties and it's in in and around uh september is that september what is that yeah september october where labor on an aggregate their primary vote fell below the primary vote of the uh, liberal national coalition for the first time since the election it had been steadily sitting to your point it had been sitting hovering you know, this is just the aggregate hovering around between 37 and four, just on just a tick under 40. Uh, and in that sort of September, October, it actually switched and it's held there really. It's sort of today's, uh, sorry, no, I shouldn't say today, that there was a poll that came out by Resolve. Um, and I think we had a news poll yesterday. Yeah, right. That has Labor on 34, the L Liberal National Coalition on 37, Labor's. Um, Fell by one point, which you know was in the margin of error, and the and the coalition jumped three. But broadly speaking, it's kind of the, been sitting around there since that September October period you're talking about last year. Yeah, that's right. And so at the moment, if you believe the polls, the two PP is fifty two forty eight our way, but that's based on a primary of thirty three and a green vote of twelve. So, um, yeah, very tricky, mm. and and not a vastly different spread to what we saw at the last federal election. Well, no, I mean, that's the thing. Like right now, both parties are in the polls on average are two points higher than what their primary vote was on the election, on on election day. Right. But as we know, when you look across the 150 seats that will form the next House of Representatives, um, that means things can get very, very close. Mm. Indeed. Okay. So 
you've painted this bleak picture for federal labor ending 2023. Hogman A comes, the the ball drops, fairy lights, it's a new year, new year, <laughs> new me. What uh what are the considerations for Labor heading into this 2024 uh, electoral calendar that we need to start to consider? And the one thing I want to bring to your attention initially is even though we sort of think that we've got a break from elections, because we had a lot of them in sort of that 2022 period, uh, there's a few coming up in this calendar year in domestically. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, I mean, I think the government came out of the blocks in 2024 in good shape with um, a focus on cost of living um, and uh, stage three tax cuts, and we'll talk more about that. Um, but as you say, uh 2023 is 2024 has got plenty of elections that will punctuate the year um starting of course uh, on the 2nd of march with the dunkley by-election and it's a significant one um brisbane city council elections on the 16th of march tasmanian election uh 23rd of march northern territory election 24th of august um an aec redistribution that's due to come down september october um, an ACT election on the 19th of October, a Queensland election, and that'll be a biggie, of course, on the mm. 26th of October. At some point thereafter, well, on the 5th of November, US elections, around this time, elections in the UK, and then a WA election on the 8th of March, 2025. So there'll be a lot of moments which, um, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, the pundits will be uh, extrapolating an awful lot of lessons and messages out. And all of these elections that are not a federal election um, creates this situation in terms of um, media spin by both the labor by by both the labor government and the liberal uh, opposition, and it, it's a trope that annoys me greatly because it's this spin of if the local state election or territory election is a positive for you, then therefore it's an endorsement of what you're doing federally. But if it's a shitstorm, then it's got nothing to do with you whatsoever. And it's all <laughs> down to local issues. And we do it from opposition and we do it from government. And I hate it so much. But do you, you know, if you're the federal team, how are you weighing into what's going, what's going to be happening locally? Like, is it, is it, do you want to be a part of, these local campaigns? Do you want to just let the local campaigns do their thing? Like, I'm just interested to get a sense yeah. from Well, that. I mean, as you know, state leaders and the federal leader um, think very carefully about the extent to which they're going to associate with one another, mm. and it's a ruthless appraisal done on whether you think someone's going to approve your vote or not. Um, popular federal leaders don't want to be seen with premiers gasping their last breath and vice versa. Um I mean, I think, for instance, if you th the Tasmanian election is one we will look at because it will tell us what state the Labor machine is in Tasmania. And as you remember, Tasmania was a disappointment at the last federal election. We've got two marginal seats there in Bass and Braddon. The Labor Party would still have the ambition of trying to jag one of those. Um, so, you know, Tasmania becomes important uh, for that reason. Um, Similarly, the Queensland election, I think, will be interesting because Labor does so badly there, five of 30 seats, um, and that 
you know, that's a federal result we got while there was a state Labor government in place. Um, so does a change of state government change the dynamic in a way that perhaps even works for federal Labor? Um, are there a bunch of Queenslanders who will elect a state Conservative government but then, you know, as part of a sense of checks and balances, be more open to voting for an incumbent federal Labor government? I, I mean, you can almost spin these ways, any, it's spin these things any way you like. But, you know, it, the WA election um, in March of next year is again one we will look to because the popularity of McGowan was such a critical factor for federal Labor at the last federal election, he's now gone. I've seen some analysis that says he is he was worth 6% to federal Labor's vote in WA. Jeez. Uh, and we got 55% 2PP there at the last federal election. We've got nine seats there. We want to hold them. Um, so the state election in March of 25 will be an indication of um, how we're going uh, and how the state premier there is going in holding up a federal vote. So you know, it's horses for courses, every place is different, but I think in WA the reputations of state and federal labour are connected in a way that perhaps they're not in other jurisdictions. You did uh, mention before as well the AEC redistribution. Um, talk us through that because I've not done any research on that. Uh, in, his, in fact, historically when I was a party official, I never paid attention to that and I always just let the other <laughs> nerds do that sort of stuff. Um, but where are we going to start to see? Are we, is some states going to lose seats? Is some states going to gain seats? Where is the where is the potential impact for Labor in this uh, next round of redistributions? It's a significant redistribution. It's across three states. Uh, Western Australia is gaining a seat and going from fifteen to sixteen seats, and New South Wales and Victoria are both being redistributed, and both of them are losing one seat each, which will bring the House of Representatives back to 150 seats. It's an anomaly at the moment that it has 151. So, uh, I, I mean, perhaps the main significance of these redistributions is the fact that they won't be completed until September, October of this year. And I think that does put something of a, uh, a barrier in front of having an election ahead of time. You can, of course, have an election while the redistribution is underway, uh, but it's messy. You know, the two smallest seats are in, the, in where, where a state is losing a seat the two largest seats are put together and then turned into one um, in WA the two largest seats we put together and turned into three but it's messy mm. um, and uh, and I think apparatchiks would be keen to avoid it so those redistributions are significant I don't think there's any reason to think that these redistributions are going to play out badly for Labor I mean that's a bold prediction at this stage but um, it looks like um, uh, Labor has every reason to think it will get through those redistributions without having one of its seats um, axe murdered. But uh, but it's a, it's obviously a major moment on the political calendar. So then, if I mean, there's, there was a question I had much much later on the pod, but I think I want to bring it up now, and that is that this idea of an early election that is an election that could happen this year. But looking at the things that we have just discussed now, that is a whole bunch of um, state and territory elections uh, and local council elections in Brisbane in particular happening, um, as well as this redistribution. It's a busy time for a, if you're the national secretary of the Labor Party to work out when actually would you go to the polls, right? 
Well, I mean, the golden rule, of course, is you call an election when you think you can win one. Um, and with that golden rule in mind, I think there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that uh, with, a, with the government handing down a budget that we hope will be well received, delivering for the second time a budget surplus federally and so reinforcement of our economic credentials, uh, and at a moment in time where the stage three tax cuts begin flowing, uh, and hopefully where the economy um, is getting better for Labor with the interest rate um, uh, genie heading back into the bottle, hopefully unemployment being managed, hopefully growth not being too lethargic. Um, maybe that is a moment. That's one school of thought. And that would then mean you're kind of talking about um, a late 23 election. The other school of thought, uh, 24, yeah, quite right. The, the other school of thought, of course, is that um, all of those things might just get Labor back onto a proper trajectory, but, you know, nothing succeeds like good government. Um, and a year where we're not hobbled by the voice and where we are in control of the political agenda means that we would then come out into early 2025 in a stronger place with a stronger economy. Um, my personal suspicion, and, you know, we're only guessing, aren't we, is hmm. um, 2025 because uh, all of those things really just reset Labor um, in a way that helps us recover from the doldrums of late 2023. It doesn't mean that we're in a uh, wildly advantageous position. The government won't want to call an election if it thinks it's close because there are so many moving parts, Greens, Teals, coalition ourselves independence yada yada um and you know in the little heart of politicians hope springs eternal we always hope things will be better and our mastery of the issues will ensure that things are better around the corner so and and you know there is something virtuous about going a full term governments do like to say we've gone the full term we haven't dragged you back to the polls um, um early for our own advantage so I think those factors will come together to mean the election is early next year. But it's there the, it is. We'll see if I'm right or not. I know, but it, it's that 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 the gambler in in some people, you know, like you're at the table and you're ahead by thirty or forty bucks. Do you cash in your chips now, or do you put more money down to see if you can keep, you know, winning? Like, do you? Is there a moment that temptation that I think that the government would have, say, come September this year, that after they've had a good budget. Uh, inflation and the cost of living starts to, those numbers start to look good. Folks are feeling good about it. Uh, the tax cuts have come in for middle income earners. You know, things are good. Do you, you know, do you say, right, I'm going to cash in my chips now at this moment and test the electorate? Or to your point, do you see out, be virtuous and see out the remainder of your term? One thing I always take away from this is how short federal election cycles yeah. are. It's, we've Three got years to, is very short. It's not, it's, and particularly with most state, and territories are kind of getting familiar with this four-year cycle, which I think is actually a good time for governments to be able to bet in, do the work they need to do, give ministers an opportunity to kind of get familiar with the role and implement the policies that they want to, and then spend like the last sort of eight months in that election year, particularly in Victoria where we have them in November, you can spend that, you know, that final year just getting ready for the election campaign. But in federal uh cycles it's so quick you know your first 12 months you're getting your shit sorted the second 12 months is 
you're kind of wanting to be delivering on everything. And that was 2023. And to your point, it wasn't a great year. And then the next year is sort of getting ready to get reelected again. And it just sort of feels like you just don't have time to actually start to implement the things that you want to implement. Yeah, I think four years is the sweet spot. We see in the UK with five-year terms, they just are too long. Mm. Um, and governments just run out of breath and oppositions are out of it for too long. Um, four, I think, is the sweet spot. So, you know, I don't, having said that, I don't know what the appetite is for a referendum, but I'm guessing it's low. Well, I mean, we've talked about so it on the podcast before. Breath. Twice, <laughs> twice we've asked the Australian people, would you consider just amending the referendum so we can have fixed terms? And they've gone, no. No, I don't think I'd like that. I'd yeah, like to ask that question again because I actually think that voters might come around to that one this time. If they don't, then I think it. Um, we never have a referendum ever on anything in the history of our constitution. Like, this is no, if we were to say, like, let's uh, capitalise. Uh, here's the point, right? We should have referendums again. What we shouldn't do is leave the case for reform in the hands of well-intentioned amateurs who have no idea how to run a campaign. But the, the sad news for Labor is that the only way you get reform done in this country is if we shoulder the job. Um, we can't say, oh, this is a referendum, it's not political, we're leaving it to, you know, Malcolm and his friends in the case of the Republic or, you know, 13 different self-appointed collectives in the case of 2023 um, because it ends in tragedy. you just got to do the... Labor has to do the job itself. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a good um, advert for the, the movement right there. Okay. let's. Talk, I want to talk about stage three tax cuts. This happened whilst I was um, out of the country, so I don't really get a great sense of uh, how things were felt uh, at that time. Um, but before we talk about the the response by the electorate, I want to I want to get your ref reflections on first of all how we got here. Um, thinking back to when Labor was in opposition and didn't oppose the initial stage three tax cuts. At that time, was Labor, do you think the strategy was Labor was just trying to be a small target? I think this is a really simple story to tell, but it's so nakedly political that uh, no politician wants to tell it. Um, so very simply, I think stage three tax cuts were a public policy abomination from the moment they were conceived. Um, they might have met certain Liberal Party objectives about giving money to rich people, but they did nothing for progressives. Um, and so we hated them to our bone marrow from the moment they were announced. But we also understood, and when I say we, like, I mean, it's clear Federal Labor understood, Anthony Albanese understood, that it was a trap. It was a big trap because the whole thing was, here's a really obnoxious tax cut, Labor will oppose the obnoxious tax cut, and then we've got 70% of the media lined up, our mates slash masters at News Corp, who are just going to bash Labor to death over the course of an election for being a high-taxing socialist bunch of losers. And so that was all set to rock and roll, and we came out and said, no, we'll support them. And why did we do that? Well, because we... We made the assessment, well, I think we can say this with some confidence, Federal Labor made the assessment that we weren't going to gift the Liberal Party an election around tax. We were going to have a, an election with the Liberal Party on issues where we could defeat them. And Scott Morrison's cunning little trap didn't work. But that meant that we came into office with a commitment to support tax cuts that we loathed to our marrow. Mm. Now, Albo then proceeded to do something which I think is very clever and very commendable, and that is he let the debate roll out and he let 
people speak their mind. And we saw Greens and Teals campaigning against these tax cuts on the basis that they're inequitable. We, we saw think tanks um, coming out saying that they, they made no economic sense, they made no sense. And, so, and, we, and we let Labor people speak out on the issue and we let all of that run. The Labor Party didn't try and clamp down on it. Um, and that meant that in due course, the Labor Party could say, well, there's been something of a national conversation about this. And guess what? These tax cuts are wrong for this moment because this moment is about um, alleviating people's pain on cost of living. And that means don't give tax cuts to our wealthiest. Let's spread them around. Um, now, uh, I'm, I've got no doubt that that was timed to give us momentum at the start of a fresh year. Tick, that's good. Um, now, of course, the coalition comes out and says, well, this is outrageous, it's breaking a promise. Um, Dutton, um, you know, says this is, this is the Labor Party heading towards Marxism and, by the way, I'm voting for them. Yeah. Um, so the coalition's position kind of, the wheels fell off and, uh, very, very quickly because how on earth could they oppose a tax cut that was uh, more equitable um, and better received by Australians. Now, the Labor Party's not going to say uh, we always face these tax cuts, but, you know, in our dark little heart here, Stephen, we can say the tax cuts were always a policy monstrosity and, you know, fuck them. We were going to get rid of It is a virtuous thing to have got rid of them um, and a virtuous thing to have got rid of them when we did. And... The media saying, oh, my God, this is a broken promise, um, can jam it up their proverbial because the media were the whole reason the Labor Party did what it did. So as to deny the media the opportunity to beat us to death during a federal election campaign uh, as a high-taxing party. And the nonsense that has been written, I saved a special one here from Walid Ali who um, you know, was complaining about the fact that Labor had broken a promise and how can we ever be trusted again. Um, uh, you know, it's the media and their hysteria and their enthusiasm for the simplest of Liberal Party tropes um, that we embarked on this whole magical mystery tour in the first place. And having avoided a free character assessment from them at the last federal election, um, I, I don't think the Labor Party's got any apologies to make. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. You started to talk in, a, uh, in an area that I want to go to in a moment, but before we do that, I just uh, which is the response from media, opposition, and voters. But, but, but before we do that, can I just get us get your thoughts on the actual timing of it? Because I'm with you in that I thought I always thought that Labor was going to tear up those statutory tax cuts. It wasn't a question of would I they, but they when would? They? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I I just. I thought it was a no-brainer. And then all of a sudden, the global economy are struggling with cost of living pressures and rise, rising inflation. This is inherently uh, inflationary, um, uh, uh, an, uh, an inherently inflationary piece of policy. It was a 
it wasn't it, it just made sense to to get rid of these tax cuts and i thought that they would go earlier so i was intrigued when it did happen i was like oh right what took you so long so my question to you is david do you think that off the back of you know the the picture you the bleak picture you painted for federal labor in that sort of september october november december uh period was that would that have influenced their decision to say, you know what, now is the time to do it? Just the timing of it, I thought was. I'm not critical of it. I just was interested about when they when they did do. It. Why didn't they go earlier? Is I guess the question I'm putting to you. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I don't know the answer, but I can speculate. And my speculate, and and the government's been at pains to say this was a treasury idea, not our idea, and the timing is completely, um, you know, coincidental and a sign of good public policy process rather than politics. With that caveat, I, I think there was no point doing this in the last quarter of last year because, as I've described, you know, the voice, the um, the war in the Middle East, um, the High Court's decision and the focus on immigration, it, too cluttered and too negative a landscape to launch something as important as this. Um, it made sense to do it when they did it um, as a... Uh, you know, a start of a fresh start and momentum building into 2024. So that would be my guess, and that's all it is. So to the question then about the response by different uh, groups, and I'm going to categorise them into three, the media, the opposition, the voters, out of those three groups I mentioned, wh- whose response surprised you the most to the uh, the announcement of cutting these tax cuts? No, 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 I thought it was all pretty predictable. I mean, the coalition scrounging for an issue, tried to make it a, you know, character test that we'd failed, um, but fell on their face very quickly because they couldn't sustain an opposition to the actual policy. Um, The electorate welcomed it because these were tax cuts on the never-never and they were never going to see them anyway. Mm. Um, And suddenly they were getting a piece of the pie that they otherwise weren't going to. Um, And, of course, the media um, were upset because uh, why couldn't they have had fun with us um, at the last federal election on this issue rather than watching us sidestep a landmine that they were really looking forward to watching go off. And, and this this morality from the media about, oh, you broke a promise, like they're forgetting the fact that most voters just assume that politicians break promises every single day of their lives. And so the fact that they've done it again is like, eh, whatever, but ultimately I'm happy because I'm getting a tax cut and that's the most important thing to me in my life. <laughs> well, I wouldn't put it like that, Stephen. I would say um, this wasn't a promise so much as a uh, a coercive um, extraction from us um, (laughs) on the eve of an election Um, and, you know, the fact that Morrison and News Corp are disappointed that we didn't fall into the pit they dug for us um, meant that, but, you know, I I don't accept that politicians break promises all the time, but what we do do is avoid blackmail and traps. Speaking of um, blackmail and traps, I want to talk to you about Dutton. Uh, now, obviously, he's demanding for a uh, for the government to seek a new mandate from the electorate because of this said, broke, air quotes, broken promise. Um, and I guess this is just um, a media grab by him. But are we, and I want to start to talk about uh, Dunkley in particular, Are we? do you think Dutton's feeling any pressure from his own caucus leading into this Dunkley by-election? <laughs> Uh, well, yes, I think he is. I, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think his leadership is under threat, uh, but I think the Liberal Party are obviously 
in a position at the moment where um, they're trying to range find against the government, they're trying to uh, damage the Prime Minister, and they're wrestling with this conundrum of uh, where does the Liberal Party's future lie electorally? Um, how, what, yeah, I mean, we say the House of Representatives is close from a Labor perspective. We have, what, 76 or 77 out of 151. Um, but, you know, the Liberals have got 55. Um, they've got f several fronts to worry about, and these fronts are different in terms of their demographics and their policy agendas. It was interesting, I think, that the six seats held by the Teals all voted yes to that mm. referendum we spoke of. Um, so they are continuing to be at odds with those electorates whose hearts and minds they want to win back or at least begin the process of winning back. And I think Dutton is kind of the exemplar of saying to the Liberal Party, no, our future is not with high education, high income, um, small L Liberals. Our future is with conser hard conservative politics in the outer suburbs. And if you if that is the Liberal Party's future and you're going to be the messiah for it, you've got to win the Dunkley by-election. Mm. Because if you are carrying that flag and you go down to Dunkley and you get beaten, um, then the Liberal Party is staring at a future where it's not winning in the outer suburbs and it's not winning in the inner city and it's, and it's in real trouble. So... Uh, that, I think that means uh, it, this is very, very important uh, for the opposition, in some respects more important for them than it is for us, though it's important for us too. Um, and, uh, you know, is a by-election that will frame politics uh, for, you know, several months of this year. The uh, Labor holds the seat by 3.5%, which is about 12,000, roughly around 12,000 votes. I, I would suggest, and I'm being a bit of a bugger here, but I would suggest that if the Liberal Party don't even get a swing to them, that I would be starting to say to Dutton, uh, if I was in his caucus, how's your strategy going, mate? Because we didn't even get a swing to us. This is, like Dunkley is the types of seats that he, as you said, it, he is saying that these are the seats, this is going to become our new heartland, a new pathway to 76, and you can't even get a swing to you, mate, then what good are you? I'd be shitting myself. <laughs> I, I chuckled because I remember asking a Labor leader once how his strategy was going and that conversation didn't end well. Um, asking I, I do want to, can I just, just one moment, I do want to make this show where every now and then I want a nugget, I want a, the, the folks want a story. And yeah. It, yeah, I'm not telling that one. Um, so, <laughs> So asking a leader how their strategy is going can be a career-limiting move. Um, but it's obviously the question that every um, Tory is going to be contemplating. You know, what is the destiny of our party? And if it's big C conservative in the outer suburbs, why are we failing in Dunkley? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, part of the conundrum for the Liberal Party, though, imagine this. Let's say they fail in Dunkley um, and the... Uh, moderates inside the Liberal Party, and there's still a good chunk of those, say, well, hang on a minute, we need to have a rethink. Um, 21 of the 50, no, I'm going to get this wrong because it includes the Nats, but there are 21 members of the coalition from Queensland. Um, so the problem for Dutton's parliamentary party is that this losing formula is still getting them re-elected. Mm and may not mean they're able to entertain 
the policy uh, shift that the Liberal Party needs to make. You know, the, the, the lunatics have taken over the asylum there and it's going to be a courageous Liberal leader that can reset them. Yeah, I know. It's, it's it's fascinating, really, when you think about it. It's something that they're, they're straddling. It's like you, you, you've got your foot on two logs and they're slowly moving apart and you're kind of working out, do I? when do I jump onto yeah. the one log and ride that down the river, right? Well, we this, know this, right? I mean, it's not like the Labor Party is just observing this phenomenon. We've got it in our own universe as well with the Greens. Yep. There's just an increasing number of seats now where the contest is Labor and Green. Um you know, unhappy story in Brisbane, continuing to hold the line here and in New South Wales, but it's hard. We understand this fight. Yeah. Um, let's uh, dive into a bit more detail into um, the Dunkley by-election, which is happening uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, there was an article in The Guardian r- recently uh, looking at this group Advance Australia, which is this right-wing third-party campaign group that's, um, that, that is that uh, is modelling themselves on being the right-wing get-up, which I think is funny. It's kind of like saying I want to be the right-wing version of the New York Jets. But um, they were uh, heavily back behind the no vote for the referendum in uh, the voice referendum last year. Yeah, they uh, ran a campaign, which... Um the yes case really could have tried. And I just for context for the folks out there you're thinking, oh shit, you know, Advance Australia, they won the they won the they won the referendum. They must be amazing. They've also they've been around since 2019. And their forays into previous electoral politics has been less successful. They tried to um save Tony Abbott's seat of uh, Warringah and lost. Uh they ran races in the 2022 election both against Labor and against what was seen as, uh, uh, was it Pocock in the ACT and uh, one of the Teals in New South Wales and lost. However, they obviously had a lot of success in that referendum and now they're dipping their toe back into electoral politics in in, in Dunkley with this sort of put Labor last campaign and they've got these advertising trucks, which they're calling truth trucks. Um, <laughs> missed out an opportunity, they're calling it a truck of justice. Um, and uh, driving around the electorate, uh, plus a lot of digital advertising. Um, They're actually outspending the Liberals in digital advertising, but not outspending Labor. Should we be worried about these guys? I just want to get your thoughts on this sort of third party kind of, I mean, we've seen on the Labor side, right, where the trade union movement's always played a big role in that, and plus groups like Get Up, whether they help us or not, I don't really know. But uh, the the conservative side of politics is getting their shit together. How, How concerned are you about this? Yeah, I think we should be concerned. The first thought I have is just how lucky is Labor? We've got Advance and Get Up both attacking us. Um, <laughs> I've, I've always just been so frustrated with how Get Up is essentially a green front and spends all of its time attacking Labor for not being left-wing enough. And now we've got Advance who's going to spend all of its time telling people that we're uh, a communist conspiracy. Uh, I, I think we should be worried. We should be worried for a couple of reasons. One is that um, they will bring, at least under existing electoral laws, and these might be about to change, they have the potential to bring uh, significant money to the fight. You can see a couple of conservative billionaires um, happily bankrolling this kind of operation and, uh, and what it does. But I think the more dangerous thing for Labor 
is that this group can run some hard right-wing messages in campaigns in a way that might give the Liberal Party plausible deniability for them. So, for instance, what you, there's one down in Dunkley, which is a very sort of nasty, hard-hitting uh, message about um, you know immigrant rapists and um, sex offenders being loosed into the community by a negligent Labor federal Labor government. How many of them are living in Dunkley? Um, that kind of you know that, now the Liberal Party can shrug its shoulders and say, "Well, hey, you know, that's not us; that's those guys." Um, so. And those hard right messages, um, particularly when they're packaged in issues like immigration, um, have the have the capacity to hurt us, and particularly hurt us um, with a portion of our base who are worried about those issues and are easily rolled up by them. So um, that's a problem. But it's not all great for the Liberal Party because, as we've seen uh, with News Corp. Sometimes the tail ends up wagging the dog. And so the level of coordination between um, the Liberal Party and Advance will be an interesting one. And to what extent do they become um, an integrated part of a holistic conservative campaign or do they just become um, crazed renegades who are, who are doing things that are unhelpful for the Liberal Party? Um, too early to say, but... You know, I, I, I've made this observation before where, you know, we watch Sky and News Corp um, support the Liberal Party but at the same time end up driving the Liberal Party into places where it actually in the long term is weaker. It's a two-edged sword having News Corp as your friend um, because once they do your thinking, you do in part wander off into la-la land in a public policy sense and we, I think, saw that. Uh, and have seen that with the federal lib. So that's a long answer, but I, I think we should be worried um, because, you know, get up is not the equivalent. I mean, not only do they, are they not coordinated with Labor, um, they're positively hostile <laughs> um, and uh, and they really have evolved into a green auxiliary rather than a Labor auxiliary. Um, but these guys in advance, there's every prospect they'll become another arm of the Liberal Party. And I, I don't. I mean, I have no evidence of this, but I get a sense that there is probably strong coordination between the campaign arm of the Liberal Party and this mob, Advance Australia. Um, and it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that plausible deniability thing around hard right wing messages. Yeah, and there is a cabal of people inside the Liberal Party, and you see this at Sky on Night in in, in sort of the exemplar of it. This you know view that yeah, you know, the problem with the Liberal Party is it's not right wing enough. It's labour light, and it needs to sort of pony up to the culture wars in a way that hasn't happened to date here in this country. Well, advance could be a vehicle for doing some of that, mm. and doing some of that in a way that um, you know doesn't totally muddy the Liberal Party's brand, but still generates the electoral effect. And they're very much. Tr it seems that their messaging strategy is really much trying to make this a a a, a by election about. Anthony Albanese and, uh, you know, uh, less about promoting the, the positive policies of the, of the Liberal Party, but very much attacking uh, Labor and that they're too left-wing and they're, they're woke and that there's a lot of uh, US-style Republican messaging coming through some of their materials. Some of them, I think, actually, I looked at and went, mm, that could be pretty effective. And others, I was like, oh, that's a bit crazy. 
um, even for Victoria, um, I, I was like, going, oh, look, you know, I just don't. Because I, I think my broad thesis is, is that with compulsory voting in this country, it forces folks to be centrist uh, in terms of the way that you campaign to the electorate uh, and to be kind of normal and that if, and crazy doesn't win. Whereas in the United States, it's about turnout. I'll get the turnout in a moment, actually. Um, and I just wonder how this will, will play out. Also, how does this play out in an electoral uh, setting where it's not necessarily binary, uh, where it's either yes or no, where this one is you've got a series of choices, um, how you vote. You can, you know, you, you've got you got your primary vote, but you've got your preferences as well, and that things may flow back to Labor. I, I get that's why they're doing the put the Labor last. They're trying to create a binary question there, but I, I just wonder yeah, how, I, much I, it'll, how much it'll translate into a local campaign. I mean, I think one of the other differences with the United States, and there are many, mercifully, is that the Labor Party has not completely gone down into the woke rabbit hole like the US Democrats has done. Um, you know, I mean, Biden is the geriatric centrist face of a party that is now in parts quite radically woke. And we can have an argument about what that means, whatever. Uh, it's been done to death. But um, that hasn't happened in Australian politics in the same way. And really, uh, the Greens have become the vehicle for that radical um, set of, of ideas and, you know, uh, more so than the Labor Party. Um, has done, and that means that importing those critiques by advance and others doesn't quite have the same resonance because we're not seen to be quite as policy wacky as, you know, Californian Democrats are or whatever. Um, but we do need to keep an eagle eye on this, um, both in terms of our own policy positioning um, and in terms of what uh, what they're up to and and what effect it's having. So yeah, I think we should be concerned. The, the thing that one, one I mean, I, I, I from reading the couple of columns that have been written about them, the thing that I've seen in terms of their message delivery service is most is mostly uh, uh, the these stupid trucks that drive around, which I think has little impact. Or in terms of you know return on investment for paying for these trucks to drive around, I think it's just pointless. So happy days, keep doing that, guys. Um, a lot of letterbox drops, uh, which, you know, you and I talked about the value of this. When layered, yes, but in isolation, I think less effective. So, you know, if they want to keep doing that, that's great. Um, and then obviously online advertising, but notably um, a lot of advertising in, in Facebook and Facebook groups and that kind of thing, but not a lot of advertising in, say, the traditional areas where, like, Labor spends a lot of their money, which is in Google ads and stuff that's just constantly popping up wherever you go surfing on the internet, right? Uh, Facebook is to, very much geared towards an older demographic, and that older demographic probably skews conservative anyway. So I feel like the, their strategy, their, the platforms in which they're trying to communicate to the, to the electorate is already probably voting for them anyway. And I don't see them reaching out into that undecided, persuadable um, part of the electorate. And one, one of the ways you can do that is through knocking on doors, and they're not doing that just yet. So if I start to see this these billionaires investing in a proper field strategy, then I'm going to start to really shit myself and think, oh, fuck, here we go. We're in for a bit of a fight here. But until then, I'll, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not overly concerned, but something to keep an eye on. Yeah, and just don't underestimate the extent to which these sorts of crazed notions and cons sort of pseudo-conspiracy theories can take root in corners of our 
constituency. And, I, you know, I think the great example of that is during the pandemic where parts of, you know, the western and northern suburbs of Melbourne um, did find themselves, um, you know, down the rabbit hole watching some crazy shit on YouTube. Now, all of that, I don't want to exaggerate any of this, mm. but but we need to watch it because in, a, in the United States, again, we've seen how this stuff really has morphed the American polity so that both sides of politics there believe some pretty outlandish things about one another and their country. Agreed. One thing that I do have hope in, certainly from the United States, and to your point before, you are talking about the, 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 the polarisation of US politics, in particular, like, you know, the Democrats becoming quite woke, um, is that where the Democrats must win House races, um, that the types of candidates that are getting elected, um, either in the midterms or in the generals or in these sort of, you know, out of cycle races, uh, good local centrist centre-left candidates running on good local issues that if they stay away from all the national stuff and focus on the issues that are impacting those local communities, then they have success. Um, and when they try and go down that sort of work path, then they then they're not winning. Half the reason why New York, for example, remember in the midterms, the Democrats sort of held back this red wave, um, but there was a bit of a collapse in New York. There is an argument that the New York State Party kind of got a little bit wrapped up in a, a lot of that kind of bullshit, and therefore they got their asses handed to them at the electorate by the electorate in those midterms. And so there's been some lessons from that. So I, there is some hope that I see that what we here in Australia for the Labor Party do quite well, I think, is select good candidates and run on good issues that um, that's the lesson I'm taking from what's going on in the, in the US as well and maybe trying to avoid a lot of that noise from the AOCs of this world or Gavin Newsom's and the like. I mean, I think one of the great strengths of the Australian Labor Party is its trade union affiliations, and you've heard me say this before, but uh, not irrespective of what the factional alignment might be of trade unions, they do bring to the Labor Party you know, nine times out of ten, a policy earthiness, mm. a reality check, which stops a mem membership-only party from you know, losing touch with planet Earth because um, unions are very practical institutions by their nature and want to do things. Um, long may it continue. Indeed. Now, last question I've got before we wrap up, actually, and still related to Dunkley. Obviously, um, in by-elections, we see that turnout, even though we live in a compulsory attendance of a polling centre democracy, in by-elections, a lot of folks don't know that there's an election on. And so turnout is important. And over, you know, thinking back, if you, you know, take out your 1999 election playbook and blow the dust off it um, in by-elections in those days, turnout really, the, the efforts that we put into trying to turn out our base to vote has was minimal. And each cycle we're seeing that we're doing more and more and more of it. And I think back to one by-election that you and I both um, were invested in, me and my as a job, my job as a party official, was the Northcote by-election. And we under, and we had a turnout campaign there. Like we knocked on, Labor voted doors uh, Thursday night, Friday night, and all day Saturday and did phone banks and our output was huge. Still wasn't enough because there was a huge group of Labor voters that just did not turn out to vote. Mm. We lost the seat in the by-election. This is Northcote. But then won it back in the general. 
And I took a lot of lessons from that. And I think that my lesson from that is we need to start turnout so much earlier, so much earlier to really educate voters. Hey, there's a by-election on. You need to make sure you vote on this particular date. Um, what, are, what, are your, what are your thoughts on um, going into this Dunkley by-election about how much emphasis needs to be put on a get-out-the-vote strategy? Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I, I, both of us scarred by the Northcote by-election. I, I, I think we lost it because of turnout um, and uh, won it back because of turnout. Um, I think largely that's true. Uh, so, the th I mean, the thing is, in a general election, state or federal, the whole universe is informing people that there's an election on. Um, and no matter how much one has insulated oneself from political discourse or, you know, if you've come from a non-English speaking background, which is a particular factor for us in Northcote, um, nonetheless, you know, the message pumps through, there is an election on and people understand they have to go and vote. Um, and it's amazing to us political insiders how much that is missing in a by-election. You know, there will be a much bigger proportion of the community wandering around oblivious to the election um, than we would imagine, um, you know, one in five. So, um, yes, turnout's critical. And it's not... Now, I mean, the interesting question would be in Dunkley, and I don't know the answer, but, um, I mean, in Northcote you can draw something of a sketch of what the voter looks like who doesn't come. You know something about them. And that leads you to the conclusion that they're, in the main, Labor voters. Uh, I'd be interested in what that sketch tells us in Dunkley, but probably the same answer. Mm. Um, you probably don't have the non-English speaking background challenges, but you may do, Indian community, Chinese community, others. Uh, but, yes, I guess this is a very long-winded way of saying yes, Stephen. We need a turnout strategy, and it's really nothing more than reminding people as much as possible voting is compulsory and saturday is the day mm. yep um talking to some folks on the uh the labor campaign in Dunkley, they are putting a big effort into get out the vote in fact um i'll drop in the bio for today's episode links to where you can sign up for a shift so there are daily door knocks there are local phone banks there are virtual phone banks for those of us that are outside the election of Dunkley. Um, and there is going to be obviously get out the vote door knocks that are happening all week and on election day as well. So visit thisislabor.org and go to the get involved tab to sign up for a shift. But I'll put that link into the bio as well. So please dedicate your time and resources to this campaign because it's critically important that we hold on to the seat of Dunkley um, on uh, this coming Saturday. David Feeney, thank you so much for your time today. Great to see you again. Great to kick off our first of the, I think we're calling it the Feeney Files, but I don't know if we've settled, we've settled on that. We, I do want to get a story out of you, but clearly you weren't going to give us that one where you told a particular <laughs> leader that your strategy sucks. Um, maybe uh, next month when we have you back on the show to review the month of March. Well, I look forward to participating in the second instalment of David Feeney's Hour of Power. <laughs> maybe that's what we call it. <laughs> Wonderful. Have a great month and I'll talk to you next week. Cheers, mate. You too. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? 
hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.